Hear the word of God from Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. God's messenger, who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. They didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. Egyptians chased them. Oh, wait. The waters formed a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry, as morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into a panic. The Lord jammed their chariot wheels so that they wouldn't turn easily. The Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water comes back and covers the Egyptians, their chariots, and their cavalry. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. At daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. The Egyptians were driving toward it, and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the cavalry, Pharaoh's entire army that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. I can remember as a child hearing the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree and later saying, I cannot tell a lie. I can also remember hearing the story of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox felling trees in the wild frontier. Those stories, when I heard them, were imaginative tales for me as a child, perhaps as they were for you when you first heard them. But now I can look back and see that they were more than just creative stories. They helped shape the consciousness of our country. They helped form the culture and character of who we believe we need to be as a people. With George Washington, we learned the value of honesty. With Paul Bunyan, we learned the value of human initiative and hard work. I like what author David Adams Leeming says about stories like these. He says they're like mirrors, mirrors in which we see images of who we think we are, images of how we believe we're perceived in the world, and images of how we believe we need to perform and behave in the world. And I think that is the perfect way to describe the central story of our service this morning. The story of the Exodus is the single most important story in the history of the Israelite people. In fact, I'd go far as to say it is one of the most important stories for us as Christian people, second only to the story of Jesus. It is so significant that for the rest of our journey this year through the Bible, we're going to lose count of the number of times the authors of the books of the Bible refer back to this story 
the story of the Exodus when God parted the waters of the Red Sea and the people who were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt were led into freedom toward the promised land. The Exodus forever helped shape the consciousness of an entire culture and of an entire faith. That's the power of this story. The Exodus would forever remind the Israelites of who God was and who they were called to be and what they were called to do. And it is a story that poses that very same challenging question for you and for me for our time. It is my hope that by the end of our message today, you will have some answer to this important question that Exodus asks more powerfully than any other story in the Old Testament. What does Exodus tell you about who God is? And more importantly, what does Exodus call you to do and call you to be? I pray for our answers this morning. When we ended the readings of Genesis this past week, we found that the family of Joseph, the family of Jacob, had settled in Egypt, having escaped massive famine in their homeland. A lot of time passes between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, so much time that that family of Jacob has grown exponentially. By some estimates, by some scholars, it is estimated that at the beginning of Exodus, the Israelite people had grown to 2.5 million people. That's a lot of Israelites living in Egypt. So much, so many of them, that Pharaoh decided to leverage that number and turn them into forced labor to build giant monuments to the gods of Egypt. He was so concerned about the population explosion that Pharaoh ordered the killing of the firstborn of all of the Israelite families. That's the context for the beginning of Exodus. It is not a pretty picture, and it is that very same context of forced labor and loss of freedom and excessive punishment and inhumane treatment, particularly of persons of color, that Moses rises into the upper echelon of biblical heroes and enters the picture. This is the background for Moses. Many of us have heard the story before of how God called Moses. Moses was a fugitive on the run. He had killed an Egyptian slaveholder for beating up a fellow Israelite. So he committed that murder and ran into the wilderness covered by the shadow of his own guilt. And there wandering in the wilderness, now having reinvented himself, establishing a new life as a shepherd, a runaway fugitive who was tending sheep for a living, he comes across the presence of God in the form of a voice that was speaking to him through a bush that was burning but not consumed. That moment was so sacred, that place was so holy that the voice commanded Moses to slip off his shoes because the place where he was standing was holy ground. So he slipped off his shoes, but kept in his hand the symbol of his new life, that walking stick, that shepherd's staff that gripped tightly in his hand. The voice then told Moses, what is that in your hand? The obvious answer, of course, to God would have been, it's my shepherd's staff, it's my walking stick. But for God in that moment, that was not just a piece of wood. It was not just a shepherd's staff. 
it symbolized so much more. I love what Rick Warren does to interpret what happens next. Rick Warren said that that shepherd's staff symbolized for Moses something so much deeper, just as it symbolizes for you and me. For Moses, that shepherd's staff was a symbol of three things, his identity, his income, and his influence. All three of those things. First of all, it was his new identity. Moses was reinventing himself. He was a fugitive on the run. He was far removed from his former life as a prince in Egypt, living in the luxury of Pharaoh's palace. And now he was trying to reinvent himself under the cover of a shepherd. He was running away from his past. He was guilty of his mistakes. He knew who he was. And that shepherd's staff symbolized all of it. It was also his source of income. That was the way he was now putting food on the table. He was no longer depending on the luxuries of the palace. He had now gotten a job as a shepherd. And in order for him to make ends meet, he needed to work hard. And that shepherd's staff represented everything that he did to bring food on the table, to fill his finances, to provide for his own needs. It was a symbol for his material possessions. But most importantly, that shepherd's staff was his symbol of influence. It was his authority. It was his control. With that staff, he could make sheep go where he wanted them to go. He could corral them away from harm. He could ward off animals that were threatening his flock. It symbolized for him his authority, his influence, his ability to control. And what did God ask Moses to do with that shepherd's staff? Let it go, Moses. Drop that staff onto the ground. I find that to be a powerful call, not just for Moses, but for you and me. How willing are you and I to let go of our identity, who we think we are, and how we present ourselves to other people, our income, our, our addictions to wealth and our preoccupation with material possessions and our worries about our finances and our influence, our belief that we are in control and our capacity to influence others and those who are within our own sphere of influence. God called Moses to let it go. And the Bible says that at the moment that that staff hit the ground, that lifeless, dead piece of wood came to life. It turned into a slithering, breathing, organic, living snake. What was dead came to life when Moses surrendered it to God. I find that to be a compelling part of his call. Because at the very moment that we are willing to let go of our identity and our income and our influence, that which is dead can now burst into life and in fact offer life for others. It was the symbol of the serpent on the stick that would bring healing to the Israelite people. In God's hands, that which is lifeless can come to life and bring life to other people. And to underscore the point, at the very moment that God tells Moses to pick up that snake, which would have petrified me, by the way, in that moment, Moses picked up that snake I don't know if it was by the tail or by the head, but at the very moment, Moses' fingers touched the scales of that snake and grabbed hold of it, 
and grabbed it and pulled it toward himself again, that's the moment the snake became lifeless again and became a stick. It's a reminder that the moment that we hold on to those three things and grip them closer to ourselves is the moment they lose its potential to bring good and life for other people. I find that to be a compelling picture and a reminder for us today. And to emphasize the point, the book of Exodus goes one step further to compare and contrast the two choices. Are you going to be like Moses who surrenders his income, his identity, and his influence? Or are you going to be like the other main character in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh? Over and against the picture we have of Moses, we have a person in Pharaoh who does the exact opposite of what Moses does. He doubles down on his grip. He clenches more tightly his identity, his prestige, his reputation, and his fame. He grabs even more tightly his addiction to his possessions and his his addiction to building monuments to himself. And he holds even more tightly his control over other people, particularly those who are oppressed. So that is the background of the great battle of wills and the great cosmic battle that we see not just between Moses and Pharaoh, but between the two great choices that we have to make in our own lives to ask ourselves the question, are we going to be like Moses or are we going to be like Pharaoh? Because the bottom line is there is a little bit of both in all of us at war every single day. And it is in that moment that God chooses to demonstrate just how powerful God is against any one of us or any person in the world who chooses to follow the path of the Pharaoh. After Moses marches into the luxurious palace of Pharaoh and demands the freedom of the Israelite people, and after Pharaoh says, no, I want to hold on to them by myself, then God begins a series of demonstrations. Ten demonstrations, in fact. We come to know them popularly as the ten plagues. I remember hearing those stories when I was a child, too. And much like the story of George Washington and Paul Bunyan, I thought they were fanciful, creative, imaginative tales. But now I come to realize just how powerful a statement God was making in that moment. Because as it turns out, each of those ten plagues was a demonstration by God against ten different gods of Egypt. The ten different gods of Egypt, like Kanum, the god of the Nile River. And so there was a plague in which God took the waters of the Nile and turned them to blood to demonstrate power over Kanum. There was a a goddess named Hecht, who was a goddess with the head of a frog. And so there was a plague in which God rained down frogs on the earth, and there were piles of dead frogs everywhere. There was a god named Geb, the god of the dust, the dust of the earth. So God exercised power over Geb by raining down on the earth gnats and lice. If you can imagine so many gnats and lice that Exodus says they were as as populous as the dust of the earth. And then there was Ra, Ra, the god of the sun, whom God eclipsed with darkness that covered the face of the Egyptian land. 
Ten plagues, ten gods, leading, of course, to the ultimate God, the God of death, which God conquered in the final plague. The list goes on and on and on. God goes over the top in demonstrating that for those of us who choose the path of Pharaoh, God is more powerful and more relentless to demonstrate that God is more powerful than all of those things. And that's just the first act of the book of Exodus. Because by the time we get through the first act with the crossing of the Red Sea, we come to realize just why this story was so important for the Israelites, not just at that time, but for millennia to come. And why it is so important to our faith, and particularly why this story is so important in our time today. Because I think we learned two things. Two important, provocative principles that we need to take home today. The first is this, it is far better to be Moses than to be Pharaoh. (laughs) Not unless you want dead frogs in your bed or gnats and lice to cover the ground. It is better to release your identity, to surrender your income to relinquish your control and your influence over to God rather than to grip those things more tightly for yourself and for your own needs. Because the moment you leave those things in God's hands, there is renewed possibility of hope and peace and life, especially for those who are oppressed. But I think the second point is even more important than the first one. Because the story of Exodus reminds us of a principle that we will see over and over again throughout the Bible and is expressed most vividly here, and it is this, God really likes the underdog. God really favors the oppressed. We've already seen this theme multiple times in our journey through the Bible, and we're just in week three We heard about how Rebekah favored her younger son, Jacob. We've heard how Jacob favored his youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And we even heard at the very beginning just how much God favored the younger brother, Abel. God consistently favors the one whom others consider inferior, especially if those people are oppressed especially if there are victims of an unjust time. And I think that, that point alone, has huge implications for our world today, especially on this eve of another day to remember the life, the work, and the witness of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We would note that it is little wonder that this story of the Exodus was so formative, not just for the Israelites and not just for the Jewish people, but for the African-American slave experience. The story of crossing through the waters of the Red Sea and God liberating the prisoners from bondage was formative to those slaves, formative to the civil rights movement, and formative to our current struggles for human equality. It is no wonder that both Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. were both called Moses figures of their day, and how the fight against injustice lives on in our time. If you read my midweek message this past Thursday, 
You read a practical way, a practical application that you might make for a modern-day Egypt and Exodus story today in the person of Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer. He's an activist who has spent the last 30 years advocating for reform in our criminal justice system. He has worked to address excessive incarceration and wrongful punishment, especially for persons of color. My two daughters and I saw the new film, Just Mercy, in the theaters this past weekend. It features Michael B. Jordan as Brian Stevenson and Jamie Foxx, who plays a real-life person named Walter McMillan. McMillan was a man wrongfully accused of a murder, and he was sentenced to death row, and he spent six years on death row until Brian Stevenson entered the picture and began to offer him legal aid that McMillan himself could not afford. And as a result of Brian Stevenson's work and his tireless commitment to find truth and justice for him, a man on death row, Walter McMillan was later exonerated for his crime and freed after spending six years facing imminent death. Thanks to Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative, which he founded. Grace and Maddie and I were so compelled by this movie, the moment we walked out of the theater, we went to a nearby bookstore and we picked up a book by Brian Stevenson that tells the real-life story of Walter McMillan, a best-selling book that I know many of you read. You told this to me after I sent the midweek message, a book called Just Mercy. At the outset of that book, there are some amazing, compelling statistics that are just too hard to ignore. For every nine people executed on death row, one is later exonerated. From the 1970s to 2014, the U.S. prison population grew from 300,000 to now 2.3 million incarcerated people, the highest rate of incarceration in the world. One in every 15 babies born just 20 years ago is predicted to spend time in jail. And one in three black males born in this century is predicted to be incarcerated. And the statistics go on and on and on in this book. Now this, I want to say this is not about letting guilty criminals go unpunished. That is not what this is about. This is about allowing those who've been arrested to have adequate access to legal aid. It is about not letting our law enforcement and criminal justice systems be governed by prejudices against any group of people, particularly persons of color. And it's about reforming our laws of capital punishment so that innocent people are not put to death. I cannot help but think about the Israelites when I read and when I witnessed the story of Brian Stevenson. And if Exodus is to continue to play any role in the consciousness of the people of God, we would do well to remember that God is a God of justice and equality and fairness, even in our systems of criminal justice and imprisonment. I hope you'll look more into Brian's story. In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't planned this way. I think it's serendipitous 
that we have this Tuesday night an opportunity for you to hear Brian's story. We're going to be showing at 6 o'clock on Tuesday at the Portico campus a documentary film about Brian Stevenson called True Justice. It's a free event. It's sponsored by the Portico and A. Brown Ministries and the Hillsborough Organization for Progress and Equality. It'll take place in the community hall at the Portico. It's free. There'll be a discussion afterwards. And I think it's serendipitous that on the very same weekend that we honor Dr. King and when we have this previously scheduled documentary film, we hear the story of the Exodus, the most formative story in the consciousness of the Israelite people and one of the most important stories of our faith. Tomorrow, we will join as a country in celebrating the life of a modern-day Moses, Dr. King, whose legacy continues to push us toward that moral arc that bends toward justice. And I invite you to ask yourself, in light of the story of Exodus, what ways are God calling you, is God calling you to lay down your identity and your income and your influence and to let those things go so that you can work alongside a God who is still working for equality and fairness for all people. Exodus is not just a story. It is more than a story of chopping down a cherry tree or a big blue ox. Exodus is a calling to our conscience. It is a summons for us to step forward. It is a reminder of what hope can look like when we offer ourselves in full surrender to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this compelling story that is now the framework of your salvation work in the world. You work in us and through us when we offer ourselves to you. Alongside your work, of setting the oppressed free. God, we thank you for Exodus. May it be more than just a story. May it be a framework for our life. May it be a mirror to our souls. May it be the backbone of our conscience. May it summons us to our higher calling. Thank you for the work of Dr. King. Thank you for that moral arc that bends us toward justice. May his dream and may your work continue through us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. In a moment, we're going to be taking up today's offering, and as always, I would remind us that the time of offering is more than just contributing our money to God through this church. It is important to offer God our gifts of generosity, but also our spiritual practices include reading the Scripture every day as we keep up with the Bible Project this year, of inviting others to experience God's love in and through this church, and by being steadfast in our prayers. So in whatever way that God is calling you to take the next step of faith, perhaps as indicated by the bulletin or in a small group or in any of our programs here at the church, we invite you to offer the fullness of who you are over into the fullness of God's love as we wait upon the ushers to receive today's tithes and offerings.